when George Bush Sr. was vice president many years ago, he told a story that ended up being quoted in the Washington Post following his attendance at the funeral of former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Here's what he said. An amazing thing happened. Things were run to a military precision. A coldness, a hollowness pervaded that ceremony. Marching soldiers, steel helmets, Marxist rhetoric, but no prayers, no comforting hymns, no mention of God. I happened to be just in the right spot to see Mrs. Brezhnev. She walked up, took one last look at her husband, and there in the cold, gray center of that totalitarian state, she traced the sign of the cross over her husband's chest. I was stunned. In that simple act, I felt as if God had broken through the core of the communist system. A number of years later, he was reflecting uh, reflections on that event by, by Gary Thomas, who was working for Christianity Today at the time. He referred to her action as an act of great courage and hope, a gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. He says she hoped that there was another life and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that the same Jesus might yet have mercy on her husband. You ever stop to think about the fact that the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith? A cross. It's an instrument of death. Had I been given the opportunity to choose the symbol of Christianity, perhaps a church steeple? Maybe an open Bible. Maybe a towel and basin representing the servanthood of our Lord Jesus. No, I didn't get to choose. Neither did you. But the church has affirmed down through the centuries that the enduring symbol of the Christian faith is a first century Roman Empire instrument of death. The cross on which our Savior was hung is the centerpiece of what Christianity is all about. I love what Max Lucado writes about it. He says, The cross rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it, gold-plated and burned it, worn and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber suspended on its beams in the greatest claim in history? A crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth, divine, eternal, the death slayer, Never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the Apostle Paul called the cross event 
the core of the gospel. It's bottom line, sobering. If the account is true, it is history's hinge, period. If not, the cross is history's hope. Again, this morning, I want us to, uh, to take a look at Galatians 2.20, our, our theme verse for this series. Do you feel brave this morning? Can we say it together? Been memorizing? I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's pretty good. A lot of different translations going on there. Yeah, I've been crucified with Christ. We're calling this the creed of the follower of Jesus. Well, I'm calling it the creed of the follower of Jesus. I'm hoping that you are too. Rather than the creed of the Christian, great word, but I have just said to you, I think it's greatly misunderstood, misrepresented in our culture. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, says Jesus, will find it. So biblically speaking, a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a follower. And Jesus says that those who are truly his followers, those who want to be his followers, they will do something. And it's language of continually doing something. They will deny themselves. They will take up their cross. The message is clear. Followers of Jesus are those that die to self. Followers of Jesus are those that die to self. And personally, I think the Christian that people in our culture need to see more of is the one who understands the call of Jesus to die to self. And so it has been my prayer all along and continues to be that that in this year, each of us will understand more clearly what it means to identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, those who claim his name and live out death to self in a culture that desperately needs to see what life is like when it is lived for Jesus and death to self. I think that's exactly what Paul had in mind when he spoke those words. I have wrote those words, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So, last Sunday, we took a closer look at what it means that Christ was crucified and what he was crucified for. And and I hope that the point was clear that, that Jesus... Dying on the cross was more than just for all of the bad things that we've ever done or will do. I suggest to you that we must understand his death as something that was more than just for sins, but it was for for sin. We can spell that with capital letters. Sin, that flaw in the human nature that desires to make life about self. In fact, it drives us to make life about ourselves. It drives us to want to be important, to want to be someone, to want to be recognized, to want to be appreciated. All of those things. Christ died on the cross so that we might have forgiveness 
for that sin that exalts self and pushes God out of the picture. Because we know that God is our Creator. And as the Creator of every human being on planet Earth, He has the rightful place to be at the center of every one of those lives. It was a relationship of intimacy with the one who made us for himself. And that, we said, was lost in the garden and is what is restored and made possible through the death of Jesus. Forgiveness for my rejection of God, for your rejection of God as the absolute center and focus of life, that is what Jesus made possible. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That I who no longer lives is the I who wants to exalt me, who wants to live for me, who wants others to see and appreciate me, who lives as if God is only a small part of life rather than the source of life and the purpose of life. The forgiveness that flows from the cross is so much more than just the wrong things that we do. Those are simply the symptom of a much larger problem. And remember as well that that is what leads to death. The challenge for each of us is to embrace the words of Scripture, the truth of God, and to understand that God who created us is the one who knows better than anyone else how life should be lived. And so when our God speaks into our life and says, live this way, live according to the life of my Son, live according to the truths in my word, it's not just a nice idea. It's the way we were created to live. And anything apart from that is death. Christ brings forgiveness for our rejection of who God is and the place of his prominence and his truth in our lives. So that was kind of a part one of a a two-part theology lesson. We want to do the second part this morning because I think if we, we understand the significance of what happened on the cross, then it helps us to better understand the remainder of our theme verse, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That launches us into a life of self-death. It is a life of living for Jesus. So if we can understand just some of the the theology that makes it so profound, I think it helps us then begin to live into the application of those truths. So this morning, let's take a look at what happens to us as a result of Christ's forgiveness. When Paul writes those words, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, what does he mean? So our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter to a church that just had all kinds of issues and struggles going on. And and one of the things that we see right at the beginning of the letter, right, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians is is just kind of an arguing and a bickering about who follows who. You know, some were prideful about being disciples of Paul. And some were proud about being disciples of Cephas. Others, they they were pretty proud of the fact that they were followers of Apollos. And Paul's point is, 
You know, that's nonsense. You need to be followers of Jesus. You know, who he has used to, to introduce you and guide you into the faith is insignificant in the end. It's about being followers of Jesus. So they were making their lives about things that related to them, things that, that helped them feel prominent and important, and, and there's that sin of self-focus and self-exaltation. So it's into the midst of that that Paul writes these words related to the cross right at the beginning of his letter. Let's stand and read what he says. Here we go. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord." My sisters, my brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. <laughs> As you're reading along, do you just kind of kind of get dizzy? It's like, whoa, you know, the wisdom of God, the foolish, you know. It, Paul is 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 setting his recipients of this letter up to understand that the character of who God is. And the way that God does things is so, so far different from the way that we typically operate in the human realm. God does not value the things that we value. God turns things upside down and does mysterious kinds of things because His character is so far different and so far more supreme and wonderful than our fallen nature. So let me put just a, uh, a statement up on the, on the screen and have you think about it for a minute. God was pleased 
through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Why do you think Paul refers to the gospel as foolish? And how is it that those who believe the foolishness are saved? What do you think? Did that strike you as you read those those words earlier? Paul's reference to the gospel is foolish. And how is it that those who believe the foolishness are saved? Talk with your neighbor about those couple of questions. See what they think. It's really key to what Paul is driving at here. Okay, we ready? So what do you think? What, what, uh, what is Paul driving at? Why is he talking about the foolishness of the gospel? Why does he call it that? Anyone? Well, what were you talking about? <laughs> okay, excellent. Sounds foolish because it's so counterintuitive. Yeah. What, what about the gospel? If I just can ask another question. What about the gospel is so counterintuitive? What sounds foolish? He saved us before we were savable. Okay. Yeah. Because we were cruddy. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> what else? What else did you talk about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's such a great line. It's not what you want in a Savior. And, and, it, and we've talked about that, haven't we, in the past? It so flows out of the character of God, the humility of God. We have talked together and said, that's hard to get our heads around. You know, the humility of God. There is, there's, a, there's a humility that flows through the salvation story. Therese, did you raise your hand? Someone raise your hand. It's not about us. And doesn't that very statement just strike you as... Well, what do you mean it's not about me? But it's my salvation. Isn't that about me? (laughs) There's just, there's so much. Listen to what, uh, there's a historian, um, what is his name? Garrett Fagan. He's written a book called The Lure of the Arena. And he summarizes what goes on in the Roman culture, which Corinth was a part of. He said, Romans viewed the values of strength and weakness, um, clearly, ideas of, of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent, and large groups of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness. Victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved, and resistors were to be ruthlessly handled. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount in that culture. And Paul wants the Corinthian believers to be very clear that the nature of the gospel is grounded in the love and the greatness of God, and it has nothing to do with those societal norms, nor does it have anything to do, it's not about them, with their character or their abilities or their achievements, and it doesn't make any sense at all by the standards of the world. 
Salvation is indeed all about God and His love and His greatness. It is not earned. It is not deserved. It is not a reward for good works. It is a gift that points clearly to the gracious nature of God. And the culture in which these folks lived, that was just incredulous. And then Paul takes the cultural symbol of the greatest weakness and loss and says, this is the wisdom of God. The cross. The cross on which Romans executed criminals. Paul exalts it as the symbol of great power and accomplishment. God chose the foolish things of the world, he says, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I read that this week and I thought it'd be interesting to know what Paul was thinking about. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And we don't have any idea. But when he wrote those words, I, I couldn't help but wonder if, if maybe a part of his thought process was thinking about the history of, of his own people. When, when God turned a, a nomad into the father of a great nation. When God started out that great nation by having his 90-year-old wife get pregnant. Something that neither of them thought was ever going to happen. Or perhaps he was thinking of the plagues of flies and frogs and gnats as part of the devastation of great world empire, Egypt, or when God knocked down the wall of a mighty city just because his people obediently marched around it and shouted at the right time. Or the shepherd boy that killed an armored giant with a sling and a little stone. And, and on and on and on the stories, I'm guessing, may have rolled through Paul's mind about the greatness of God seen most clearly when his people believed in his character and trusted in him. Put their confidence in him and not in themselves because it's a theme that runs all through the scripture. God does not take a kind view of those who boast. There is nothing to boast about. The things of God make no sense to the human mind. And so often we see that in the economy of the kingdom of God. Those values really are upside down. Humility is strength and weakness is power and the last are first and less is more. Why? Paul says, so that no one may boast before him. God does things that cannot be done so that people cannot take his credit. Tim Keller tells the story of a woman who began coming to his, his church, Redeemer Covenant, never before had heard a distinction drawn between the gospel and religion, the distinction between grace and what is often a works-based righteousness. She'd always heard that God accepts us only if we're good enough. And she said that the new message was scary. So Keller says, I asked, why is it scary? She replied, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. 
I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if indeed I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Isn't that powerful? And that's exactly what Paul understood and wants us to understand when he writes, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What does he mean? He means that with the same faith, believing that what God says will happen, when God says it'll happen, it happens, that same faith that secured our salvation when we, when we expressed our need of a Savior, whatever words those took in, whatever form that took in your life, at some point, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have put your confidence in God and you have put your confidence in who Jesus says He is and what He has done for you. Paul says that same faith is what he lives each day. He lives that out in the power of God because God indwells him. Now there is one of those kingdom values that makes no sense at all. God indwells him so that he no longer lives for himself. How does he do that? The Spirit of God really does indwell the people of God. It's the promise of Scripture. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said that it's, it's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing the, the truth of the glorious life that God has planned for us for eternity. And Paul isn't speaking figuratively. He really believes that Christ is living in him through the presence of the Spirit. I really believe that too. And yet I sometimes wonder if those who watch my life think that I really do believe that. The Spirit of the Son and the Father. The Spirit of God. Paul is outrageous enough to believe that the presence of God is in his life. And so in our text, he writes, no one can boast before God. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. That means united with Christ putting our faith in Jesus Christ to save us from the sin of a self-focused, God-rejecting life actually does do just that. It saves us from that life. Paul says this, Christ becomes our wisdom. Christ becomes our wisdom. I think it's a play on words. Paul is going back to the language that he started with, talking about the wisdom of God being foolishness to the world. The same language that he uses when he talks about Christ being our salvation, Christ being our Savior, choosing the weak over the strong, God using the weak and the foolish things to, to, to make his character known. So, we believe that we need a Savior We surrender our lives to Him and trust Him to save us. And He does. And He puts His Spirit in us to guarantee it and to give us the power to live a life that looks like Jesus and not like me and not like you. To look like Jesus. And that simply doesn't make any sense at all. It's the wisdom of God. Paul says that Jesus has become our wisdom, and specifically three words, just quickly. 
our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if Christ had not died on that cross for us, those things would not be a part of our lives. Paul says, Christ has become our righteousness. Because of his death, Christ has become our righteousness. His obedience and his sacrifice has become our obedience and our sacrifice. You don't look as if that puzzles you at all. It's amazing. Theologians talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. means that the character of God in his holiness looks at his son on the cross, takes that righteousness and places it on all of those who put their faith and their confidence in the crucified Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know what you're thinking, but that is awesome. Because just try to attain that without Jesus. It just doesn't work. To be righteous means without sin. I'm full of sin. But God, in His grace, looks at my life through the blood of His Son, and I am counted as righteous. Boy, you're looking excited about this. Woo! When we put our faith in Christ... He becomes our righteousness. Paul will write later in the same letter, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let that rattle around in your head as a result of the cross and Jesus' death on that cross for you. You get to live in the category of the righteousness of God, counted as sinless. He also says that Christ has become our holiness. Another word for that would be sanctification. His presence in us is what makes possible our growth and maturity as children of God. The Spirit of Christ indwells us. Sanctification is about being set apart. Holiness means a separate category, put in a different place. And so God in His goodness indwells us to grow in us godliness for His glory. Christ in us, Paul would say to the Colossians, Christ in us, the hope of glory. God cultivating through the presence of His Spirit in our lives, Christ-like character that exhibits to others that Christ is indeed the hope of glory. Wow! And, Paul says, in the wisdom of God, Christ has become our redemption. I love this one. To redeem something is to make it beautiful when there wasn't a chance. To redeem something is to turn trash into treasure. He is our rescuer. He takes our lives from the rubbish pile and presents them to God as treasure. To redeem is to bring good from what is hopeless. The punishment for sin has been taken from us because Christ is in us. He is our redemption. Paul told the Colossians, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. All these things, as a result of the cross, transferred and brought into our lives. Righteousness, 
holiness, redemption, all God's doing. So my brothers and my sisters, this is who we are in Christ. Because Christ is in us. It's the wisdom of God. It's, it's what he does. And it doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it's what God has chosen to do, chosen to do because it, it flows out of his character. And living into these truths, I think, is the key to living a life of being crucified with Christ. And that's where we're going to go for the next few Sundays together. To begin to say, okay, how does, how does this truth that we embrace as, as correct theology, how do we embrace this by faith and how does it empower us to, to live out Christ crucified in our daily lives? Because frankly, I think the thing that probably stands in the way of, of many of us, more often than not, is fear. We fear. We fear the unknown. We fear what people think. We fear disease. We fear poverty. We fear discomfort. We fear, we fear, we fear. Why do we fear? If all of this is true. I don't have an answer to that. But I think we will when we get there together. We've established this truth of what it means to be crucified with Christ. It is huge. And to understand what has been given to us as a result of his crucifixion. And so we'll spend some Sundays looking at that together. I would encourage you to, to go back to the scriptures on your own. Look at some of these texts that we've been in and uh, use, uh, use your concords and go to other texts and, and, and just experience the richness of the truth of what God's word says. This is who we are as a result of Jesus. So, praise team, come on up this morning, and as you're coming, I want to close with a story. Read this early in the week. True story. Blew me away. I thought, wow, there is a life crucified with Christ. Perhaps you, uh, you've heard the name Lois Prater. She was, she was in the news a couple of years ago. As a 15-year-old girl, the story goes, in 1927... Lois Prater promised God that she'd go overseas as a missionary, perhaps to Africa or India. Who promises God that they'll go to Africa or India, right? But life got in the way. So she married a farmer at age 23, and they raised three daughters. Years later, after her husband died at age 79, Lois, who was then 76, began to experience some of the same feelings she had at age 15. Longings to be a missionary. At age 76? Come on, Lois. At first, she resisted. She felt that her opportunity to serve overseas as a missionary had slipped away. She said, Lord, I'm too old to go now. I can't do this. But she felt that God was calling her to go, and she decided not to ignore a second chance at becoming a missionary that she thought she was going to years ago when she made that promise at age 15. So where did she end up going? Well, fortunately, it wasn't Africa to India. She ended up going to the Philippines, where she would stay for weeks and months at a time, aiding missionaries there. 76, 77, 78 years old. She stayed in the windowless room of a house that was owned by a church. The ceiling sagged, and she could hear rats scamper across the floor at night beneath the mosquito netting. When she returned to the States... 
she could not stop talking about the plight of the children that were there in the streets and how she wondered what she could do for them. And so at age 78 years old, she began thinking about an orphanage in the Philippines. One day, when she was back in the Philippines, a man appeared at the front door of the house that she stayed at. He was destitute. With six children to feed and having lost his job, he offered to sell Lois his baby for the equivalent of $40. She says this, At age 78, I believed that I was too old to start an orphanage. But this man changed my mind. So she returned to the States. She sold her home, most of her belongings, and headed back to the Philippines. She drew up plans, hired an architect, waded into the eddies of government bureaucracy, bought and helped clear more than 12 acres of land. Did I mention she was 78 years old? Raised construction money and recruited staff. In a few years, the King's Garden Children Home opened. And today, the King's Garden Children's Home continues to feed, clothe, and school children with nowhere else to go. At 80 years of age, she was the unlikely builder of this orphanage, became its president and its founder, and the children ranged in age from 8 months to 10 years old. At age 89, after the home was well established, she returned to the States for good. She died 11 years later at the age of 100. She didn't want people spending money on flowers for her memorial, so she made arrangements ahead of time that any donations, yes, go to the orphanage. One of her daughters said she was a very persistent woman, and it was tenacity that got her where she went. She had tremendous faith. To me, she's the most amazing woman who ever lived. I have no clue how she did it. I have a clue. She'd been crucified with Christ. And she was no longer living, but Christ was living in her. And the life that she so obviously lived before others, she lived by great faith in the Son of God who loved her and gave himself for her. Amen.